Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Joe Sella, the former U.S. ambassador to Fiji and co-chair Richard Studley of the 2022 Proposal 1 campaign, raised concerns about why new financial disclosure policies have not yet been approved. U.S. Attorney Mark Totten shares that his office is watching closely for public corruption, especially after the sentencing of past House Speaker and Medical Marijuana Board Chair Rick Johnson. And House Elections Chair Penelope Cernoglu gives MERS a rundown of legislation banning AI-generated deep fakes from election ads. Now, here's MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, the boss John Ruhrink, and House reporter Danielle James. Thank you, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. We are beginning with our roundtable discussion where panelists can share their hot takes and take their personal deep dives into what's going on in Michigan politics. I want to warm up our conversation with an October poll commissioned by Progress Michigan using phone interviews from 725 voters. It asked what policy issue these voters would be most disappointed about if lawmakers did not take action on before the end of 2023, which is fast approaching if the legislature does indeed adjourn in the beginning of this uh, upcoming November. And 25% said they would be most disappointed if government transparency and lobbying reform is not acted on. Uh, This far exceeds things like affordable housing solutions and utility accountability, which both got 16%, and the Reproductive Health Act, which received 15%. Uh, Today, we are joined by Richard Studley, who co-chaired the Proposal 1 of 2022 campaign requiring legislators to mandate lawmakers and state's top executives to file yearly financial disclosure reports following this year. Um, And also Joe Sella, the former U.S. ambassador to Fiji, who's been zooming in on the Michigan Economic Development Corporation and potential lacks in openness and transparency. Uh, Rich, I really want to start with you. It seems that voters want this. What's the holdup with real transparency reform in the state of Michigan, in your personal opinion? I had the opportunity last year to serve as one of four co-chairs. Democrats, Republicans, business and labor. And so we learned last year that the attitude of Michiganders is that this is not a new issue, that for decades, the state of Michigan has been one of the worst states in the country in terms of openness and accountability and transparency. And those findings have been repeated and those studies have been conducted by groups that are focused on integrity in government. So. The poll results that you shared from the Progress Michigan survey uh, are encouraging and really not surprising at all. Last year, two-thirds of the House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans, put it on the ballot. 2.8 million Michiganders, 400,000 more voters than those that re-elected Governor Whitmer, said yes. The only choice was yes on this proposal or no. There wasn't a maybe, well, if time permits, or please get around to it later. It was an overwhelming yes. What we saw and heard across the state is overwhelming bipartisan support for this legislation. My personal opinion is, amazingly, the problem of secrecy and a lack of transparency in government has gotten worse over the last two years, not better. The time for legislative action is now uh, to clean up this mess in Lansing. The original idea was to simply adopt by reference the federal requirements for members of Congress, which have been in place for many, many years. As we listened to various individuals and groups and built our coalition, we were reluctant to adopt by reference a federal statute that isn't controlled by Michiganders and could become out of date. So we literally took the major headings of the federal financial disclosure and the major headings from the best financial disclosure legislation in other states like Michigan. And that's where we said the annual public financial disclosure reports need to include assets, liabilities, income sources, future employment agreements, gifts, travel reimbursements, and positions held in organizations except religious or social or political. And we also gave guidance to the legislature that when in doubt, take the extra step to make sure that this legislation works. 
The voters clearly granted in approving this constitutional amendment the ability of the legislature to, well, they have to implement. They require the legislature to implement, but not limit or restrict reporting requirements. If you look at Congress as an example, or you look at other states, it's not uncommon for a member of Congress or a member of the legislature to have to file a very detailed report on themselves. Some states include spouses, others don't. I think the intent is to be strong and accurate, but reasonable. Would you have to include cousins that you haven't seen for years? No. Could you, should you include a spouse? I think that's something we wanted the legislature to have discretion and decide. One of the concerns that Joe and I have is over the past two years, we have seen a dramatic increase in the misuse and abuse of non-disclosure agreements. We have a member of Michigan's congressional delegation who took an oath of office to serve the public, but signed a non-disclosure agreement at the request of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. You have state lawmakers and state officers who took an oath of office to serve the public who have also signed non-disclosure agreements. I think there is inherent conflict with their oath of office. Uh, if you are an elected or appointed public official, are you serving the public or are you serving special or, or private interests? Again, that's another area the legislature has now had over 11 months to study and the bills to implement Prop 1 haven't even really been introduced publicly. But Joe, but Joe, if we don't have non-disclosure agreements and the information on some of these deals come out, they could be blown up and they could never come to pass. And isn't there a risk on the in the um, private sector of that happening? And that's why we have them in the first place. Well, uh, I would say perhaps these deals should not come to fruition because I think if the details were known, then I think frailties and uh, such things as no-bid contracts and the backgrounds of those with whom they are dealing with would shock the senses of any reasonably prudent person. So there is a right way and a wrong way uh, to go about doing business. And uh, I think there really should be a, uh, an approach rather than uh, getting the legislature to agree to money uh, and funding a particular project, announcing it by press release, and then voting it and having all the other uh, elements come together. I, I really don't think, Kyle, that that is a best practice or would stand up to the test of uh, uh, strict scrutiny and uh, operational, best operations uh, in the private sector. So I, I really think, particularly when we're talking about companies that have deep ties to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that uh, uh, are, are on the hunt for such deals, our national security and intelligence agencies warn us of such, that uh, these have to be handled with care, patience, prudence, and transparency. And uh, everything but that was done in this instance, regrettably. Could you guys envision a process whereby uh, you could have these negotiations and then maybe once once you're, the, the tenants of them are set, perhaps maybe a legislative panel you know approves them so you could have silence during the development process but then a, a you know exposure before it's actually set in concrete john i would uh that's an excellent question i think it helps us drill down as you know i spent 40 years as a chamber executive uh working every day to encourage job creation and, and economic growth and on numerous occasions as a chamber professional but even earlier in my career as a city manager and a city council member here in michigan I worked for two cities that had industrial parks. It was not uncommon for a company or a representative of a company to contact either of the cities I worked for and said, we're looking for a site of this many acres with water, with sewer, with this ability to provide energy. Is there a rail siding or not? Those preliminary discussions when companies are shopping and many times those companies were represented by a firm, a private company, uh, that is a specialist in site location or a realtor. And I think in those discussions when people are shopping and thinking about a long list, there is no need to print everything that is said or done in the newspaper or alert the general public. I think, John, the key phrase you used is in the economic development process. At the time when land has been purchased, it's already too late. 
to get genuine local input. At the time when a project has been approved and funding has been granted, to then have a perfunctory notice to the legislature, it is too late. So I think people of goodwill can make reasonable judgments, but what we have now are federally and state and locally elected officials, this happened uh, both in Marshall and in Big Rapids, who can't or won't talk to their local constituents and answer their questions because about massive MEDC mega sites because they've signed non-disclosure agreements. Elected officials shouldn't be able to hide behind non-disclosure agreements to decline to ask questions about the use of tax dollars from their constituents. I do wonder if there is a bit of concern right now. How do we ramp up transparency for new industries in Michigan? Uh, you saw with online gambling that the House chair involved with that ended up becoming a lobbyist afterward for an online gambling platform. Uh, you also saw right now, I mean, we're talking about Rick Johnson a lot, who a lot of that public corruption took place while he was overseeing a new industry, medical marijuana. Uh, now, do I dare say, Kyle, that it seems that solar energy seems to be the new industry that people are concerned about. As you see Democrats that are leading the charge, they have spouses, they have relatives who are involved in that industry. Former House Speaker Rick Johnson betrayed the public trust. He betrayed his oath of office as a lawmaker or former lawmaker. The bribery and corruption that he was involved in was a very serious crime. Personally, I'm glad to see it prosecuted. He and the other lobbyists that were involved in that betrayal of public trust should go to prison. We need to send a very clear and strong message that betraying the public trust is simply not acceptable. One of the issue areas that Joe and I would hope the legislature would look at as they work on this legislation to revise and even expand the role of the MEDC is at what point does someone who has been appointed by the governor to serve on a state board or commission have a duty to an affirmative duty to avoid conflicts of interest. We have seen two state representatives this year in the state house, the chair of the House Appropriations Committee and the minority vice chair of the Energy Committee have obvious and potentially serious conflicts of interest and they felt no compulsion uh, to disclose to their colleagues or provide financial disclosure. I think when you look at state boards and commissions that have the authority to approve or disapprove state licenses that might be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, when you look at state boards and commissions that approve loans and grants of millions, tens of millions, there's a question there for the legislature to wrestle with, should they also be required? If you are in a policy advisory committee for the state, we need input from people from all walks of life but there's a difference between advising on policy and approving or disapproving state licenses or expenditures of massive amounts of state funds. But That's a judgment call for the legislature. Their duty right now is to do the job and do it well and do it soon, both for state lawmakers and state officers. Is this a question of recusal or is this a question of transparency? Because I know in the case of Angela Whitwer, she apparently does not have ownership in that EDGE partnership and has not since she has been appropriations chair. And in the case of Joey Andrews, that company that he's involved in, he apparently that's it's sat dormant for a couple of years. They haven't really done anything with it. So, I mean, the question for you then, Joe, is is this a question of transparency and letting people know that you have had these interests and when you were involved in this company, when you weren't? and that, Or is it also a question of recusal? At what point should you not be allowed to vote on something where you could have a clear uh, financial interest? Oh, gosh. Well, I would say that uh, I'm going to revert back to my point uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, what James Madison said in uh, Federalist 10 that said, you know, said faction can only be limited by controlling it, its effects, which is underway now through um, what the legislature is now looking at through the MEDC reform package, hopefully what the legislature will implement uh, following proposal one's passage, driving openness, accountability, and transparency. But it, it's very telling, and it's really, again, I think the mechanics of the legislature to to work those finite details out. 
But when the bright light shines upon such things and, and people scramble as they have, let's just turn back to the MBDC. Quentin Messer and Joshua Hunt went before Senator McMorrow's committee in April uh, saying that, you know, they've done due diligence and were um, exhaustive due diligence and thorough and uh, job was done. We have a good gut feeling about these companies, Cattle and Goshen. But then they uh, pivoted and said, well, uh, we will do better next time. And I think that may be what, what's fueling this legislation. I hope it has teeth in it, uh, but it really needs to get to the heart, Kyle, of a sober assessment, whether it's this, you know, the ownership of different companies in the legislature uh, uh, by legislators or with respect to the collaboration with PRC-based and CCP companies. You really have to have a, a, a sober, patient, prudent approach that is mindful of, of taxpayers, the use of their dollars, and really openness, accountability, and transparency in government. I can tell you that our national security agencies and intelligence agencies have warned bipartisan elected officials on the state and local uh, level that China is on the hunt for these deals. China does not operate uh, according to best practices. These are identified as subnational incursions and influence operations, and then they use opportunities and individuals within entities uh, to find lanes to uh, root themselves. And uh, ultimately, these uh, uh, have our espionage threats, national security threats that cannot be overstated. Uh, I'll close by saying that uh, I know there is interest in uh, this uh, one of the bills that Senator McMorrow's introduced uh, where it could have a, a check on it, again, back to transparency, by requiring these deals to be subjected to a test from the United States Department of Treasury, known as the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, so that transparency could be had that way. Uh, it has to be done a thorough way through what is known as a Form 800, because any other way, currently under the state rubrics, it certainly hasn't worked. And uh, I hope that uh, that uh, a substitute bill or amendments will, will come about that uh, will foster that openness, accountability and transparency, particularly when it comes to adversaries against the United States. You know, I would like to make a sore fund pivot, uh, the strategic outreach and attraction reserve fund that is using kind of these taxpayer funds for corporate investments. Now, it seems that there is, I would dare make the observation, a bipartisan de desire for there to be more community input with the SOAR fund, more community screening. But it seems that with a lot of these reforms, that the concept of people signing NDAs for state incentivized economic development is not going to go away. Rather, it is a elected official on the state level signing an NDA. Rather, it's a local government official signing an NDA. Personally, I believe when you are a state or federal or locally elected official and you take an oath of office to uphold the Constitution, to obey the law and serve the public, there is an almost impossible conflict of interest there between then turning around and signing a non-disclosure agreement. And again, as was referenced earlier, it's one thing to have a confidentiality agreement when people are shopping, when land hasn't been purchased, when construction is not underway. But once you cross that threshold, land is purchased, construction is underway, the community at the local level, state and federal taxpayers have a right to know, how are my tax dollars being, being spent? 2.8 million Michigan voters understand one thing, that anyone who's served in state or federal government for any period of time and those of you here at MERS who are independent journalists and other reporters understand, sunshine, plain old-fashioned sunshine, is the best political disinfectant. And the earlier we can shine the light more clearly and brightly on these projects, the more likely we are to have good projects be selected and go forward. Today in Lansing, you have members of the Michigan Strategic Fund appointed by the governor with advice and consent of the Senate who have voted for projects that they benefit from financially. That's inappropriate. There was a story at the beginning of the year about how a member of the Michigan Strategic Fund Board, appointed by the governor with advice and consent of the Senate, received a substantial financial grant that she didn't even ask for or lobby for. You have people on the SOAR Fund and the Strategic Fund economic developers who lobbied for 
the Goshen Project, the president of Ferris State University who lobbied, and Ferris State University, and now the right place, are going to receive financial funding for the project they supported. That would appear to me to be an apparent conflict of interest. And again, if we had more sunshine earlier in the process, I think people would have to be more open and honest about the project, or at least recuse themselves. Getting back to Proposal 1, though, Rich, how, how does the language actually of that proposal address the MEDC boards? I mean, it, it, it's not, it doesn't really touch them, does it? The initial focus of Proposal 1, which needs to be implemented now, not later, is on state lawmakers and state officers. Our hope is that the legislature will embrace and act on the letter and the spirit of Proposal 1 and set a precedent so that these related questions about people who are involved in approving projects and disbursing funds also have a, a similar bright light shined on them and they will either feel an obligation to disclose or they won't. Part of the challenge now is the current practices rely on lawmakers to police themselves. That hasn't worked for over a decade. It's not gonna work uh, in an acceptable way anytime in the future. You can't have the fox watch in the hen house. And that's why 2.8 million Michigan voters, Democrats, Republicans, and independents took direct act action to say, we want more transparency now. Start with financial disclosure. And I think if the legislature embraces this requirement and debates it openly and fairly, we'll be able to answer more definitively some of the really good questions that have come up today. We're having this debate now on the MERS podcast. The problem is we are not having this debate now on the floor of the State House or the Michigan Senate. There is a requirement in Proposal 1 that legislators come up with the guardrails for disclosure by the end of the year, and if they don't, then a court can get involved. Do you have optimism, Rich, that they're going to be able to come to some type of compromise by the end of the year, or is it, do you see the courts having to get involved? Kyle, thank you for raising that point. Part of the voter-approved amendment that is in Proposal 1 anticipated that lawmakers might be reluctant uh, to implement this or would not either implement it at all or do a poor job. Here is what the voter-approved amendment says. The co-chairs of the Proposal 1 campaign didn't want a toothless amendment to be ignored. This amendment has teeth, and it clearly says, if legislation implementing this section is not enacted by December 31, 2023, a resident of this state may initiate legal action against the legislature and the governor in the Michigan Supreme Court to enforce this section. That's why we appreciate so much the opportunity to sound the alarm. The legislature is behind schedule. It's unclear now whether they're really willing to implement the letter and the spirit of Proposal 1. We hope they will, but if they fail to act in a timely manner, I don't think I'm going to be the only Michigander who will seriously consider filing uh, a lawsuit which would go directly to the state Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to compel the legislature to stay in session and fully enact this voter-approved amendment. So they the legislature choice. the legislature will would have to do it. The Supreme Court couldn't write the rules for them, correct? The legislature has until the end of December of this year to enact a ballot proposal right. that two-thirds of them voted on if they were incumbent. But if the Supreme Court gets has, it, it puts in, in their court, can the Supreme Court write the rules, or can they only compel the legislature to follow the law? I'm not an attorney, uh, but when we were drafting and redrafting this position, the intent was that if the legislature failed to do the job that the voters gave them, the court would not draft Okay. the legislation itself, but they would, if needed, order the legislature back into session. And I think there would be such tremendous pressure on the public at that point that they would be compelled to stay in session uh, seven days a week, if needed, to enact this. The question is, why hasn't it already happened? This has been before the legislature since May of last year. This has been a problem for over a decade Wake up, smell the coffee, do your job. 
Do you think it's possible because legislators think that this is going to be an easy lift? You know, they don't have to deal with a ton of floor amendments, a ton of floor debate. They can just be one and done. And right now they're just focused on getting all of the controversial, harder things out of the way. I think this is harder than they thought, quite frankly. I mean, you listen to us. We've been talking about this for a half an hour. And I don't think I, I think this is the kind of conversations they're having. Who is going to be involved? Who is going to have to disclose? How much are we going to disclose? Are we going to do it by the exact dollar amount? Are we going to do it by bands? Is it like Congress where it's by bands? Or are we going to have to report exact dollar amounts? How much are we going to disclose? Are we going to, I mean. Does FOIA reform have to be a part of this? If we're getting this done, should we get it all done? I would recommend to lawmakers that their constitutional imperative is to implement the voter-approved financial disclosure requirements. But those are interrelated with the lobby law, election law, and campaign finance. I think that, Kyle, you make a good point. We all know that good public policy isn't necessarily quick or easy. On the other hand, voters didn't ask them to build a spaceship to Mars. This legislation is in place in 47 or 46 other states. The laws are in place for Congress to do this. Any legislative staffer or the attorneys at LSB could look at a dozen other states that have large and complicated state governments and pick good working models. So they don't, they don't have to reinvent the wheel and they don't have to start from scratch. They have to have the courage and the intention to move forward. I do want to bring you back into the conversation, Joe Sella. Why... Why do you think that these calls for added transparency, why do you think so seriously that they go hand in hand with national security concerns? Well, Samantha, excellent question. In February of 2022, uh, our national security agencies and intelligence agencies convened a bipartisan uh, group of state and local elected officials to say, look, the People's Republic of China have companies there that have deep ties to the Chinese Communist Party that are on the hunt to look for opportunities within states to create deals. And these ought to be considered as subnational incursions, therefore espionage threats. And uh, whether you are a federal elected official taking an oath where you part of your oath involves uh, agreeing to provide for our common defense or a Michigan legislator or state official taking an oath, uh, Section One, Article One, Section One of the Michigan Constitution requires you to provide for the security and the protection of the people. So uh, this uh, China is uh, our adversary. They are a malign actor, and there have been any number of instances across the country of espionage uh, occurrences. In fact, in the last uh, 15 years within Michigan, there have been two instances where people who are tied to the CCP uh, and other uh, espionage entities within uh, have uh, surveilled, collected, uh, and reported on various uh, elements of private companies' uh, doings. Fortunately, they were uh, investigated, uh, charged, tried, convicted, and sentenced to years in prison. So this is real-world stuff. Part of this is a massive education operation. Uh, we are in uh, what many find hard to believe, essentially what amounts to a second Cold War with China. They are an adversary. And, uh, and you see a bipartisan spirit in Washington, D.C., uh, Samantha and Kyle, manifesting itself through the creation in a super-duper bipartisan majority, creating the Select Committee and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, headed by uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher and uh, co-chaired by uh, Congressman uh, Raja Krishnamurthy, who's a Democrat from Chicagoland. And there have been, uh, it is a, a beautiful representation of bipartisan engagement. Happy to see uh, the Michigan legislature now introducing a package of bill that uh, will take a very close look on foreign influence in Michigan that was born out of uh, these influence operations manifested through the presence of cattle in Goshen in Michigan and these attempted deals that are uh, attempting to be hammered home. Samantha, I would add that not only are we seeing growing bipartisan concern at the federal level, but in other states uh, about the risk to national security involved in investing in, in companies, foreign companies from countries that are adversaries of the United States. But there's also a major environmental risk in these projects. 
you have two massive projects underway to build EV battery plants. Uh, EV battery plants use giant amounts of hazardous and toxic materials every day. The Goshen plant in Big Rapids is literally in the middle of the Muskegon River watershed. The land has been purchased, they're moving towards site preparation, and the state has not issued any environmental permits. In any other kind of private sector investment, projects of that size and that environmental risk would never have been allowed to move forward without public environmental assessments and debates. So there are serious risks to both national security and our environment in these projects because they've been cloaked from day one in government secrecy, they've been buried in a mountain of non-disclosure agreements, and then there is no financial disclosure for the elected and appointed public officials who support them and benefit later. If I could just compliment one, Rich's a great point there. Back to the bipartisanship, in January of this year, our Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, spoke to the National Conference of Mayors. And uh, again, bipartisan group, uh, some would say leftward-leaning. Uh, it doesn't matter, but his message matters, and it was a bipartisan message. And he said, you, as state and local officials, or local officials in the states, need to be diplomats for us in foreign policy. Joe Sella, the former U.S. ambassador to Fiji, and Rich Studley, uh, a co-chair from the Proposal 1 campaign of 2022. Thank you all so much for joining us today on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Good being with you. Must be the season of the witch. Must be the season of the witch, yeah. Must be the season of the witch. Joining us now for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast is Mark Totten, the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Michigan. Attorney Totten announced the federal charges in April of this year against Rick Johnson, the former State House Speaker who accepted more than $100,000 in bribes from those attempting to enter the marijuana industry when Johnson was serving as chair of a newly formed Medical Marijuana Licensing Board. In an opinion piece you wrote for the Detroit News, you highlighted how the bribes Johnson received consisted of commercial sex, cash payment, and travel. Why we have you on here today is with the question, while this investigation is still ongoing, why are you becoming so vocal about the issue of public corruption in the state of Michigan? You know, I think this is the the time to do it. Uh, We have just finished the sentencing of the four charged defendants. So it's, uh, you know, the the best place, the best time for me to be able to speak more about these cases now that those convictions and sentences are firmly in place. And, you know, I will echo what I heard the judge say as well when she handed down these sentences is that perhaps one of the most important considerations here is general deterrence, which means sending a larger message to everyone who's watching that we are paying attention uh, and that there is accountability for people who true choose to use their office to pad their own pockets. And so, you know, getting out and talking about this, letting the public know, it's a really important part of making sure that we squeeze everything we can out of these these convictions. Mark, I wanted to ask you about the uh, statute of limitations on this particular case, this public corruption case. When, in your mind, does the statute of limitations begin? Is it when the criminal activity occurs or when the federal authorities become aware of the crime? No, Kyle, I'm not going to get into the the details about, you know, kind of how we're reading some of these these legal issues. Uh, There are still appeals. And as I said, this is a uh, an ongoing uh, investigation. So I just I don't want to comment on that outside of the what we will actually submit to the court. But I will say generally that these are, you know, considerations that obviously we have to pay attention to. Uh, there was some back and forth between the judge about some of the testimony that was offered by one of the defendants sentenced this week and the fact that the information fell outside of the the statute of limitations. So, you know, obviously that's that's an important factor that that we have to take into account. This investigation began, you know, back in 2017. And, uh, you know, mostly we're dealing with five year statutes limitations here. And so it's an important factor in the work we do. Now, do you plan on saying or declaring at what point 
you feel like the statute of limitations has expired and this case is officially something you're no longer investigating? You know, typically the, the, the Department of Justice does not, um, you know, publicly announce when investigations begin and when investigations close. Uh, we actually have some fairly strict rules about, you know, how we how we handle investigations and, and what we announce around them. Uh, but was there some information that was gathered during the course of the Rick Johnson cases that may have spurred maybe an additional line of um questioning or a new thread that maybe you hadn't explored yet? I think, you know, all I can say, Kyle, is that is that the investigation is ongoing. And I know that may seem uh, fairly constrained, but, you know, in part, it really is to protect people who may be the subject of that investigation. The mere fact of, of it getting out that somebody is is being looked at can have tremendous impact on somebody. And so we're very, very careful to not talk about uh, investigations other than at this point to just confirm that the investigation is ongoing. Mark, uh, John Roerink here. Quick question for you I wanted to ask. The original Medical Marijuana Act was passed in 2018. I think it wasn't until eight years later the legislature started to enact enabling legislation or safeguard legislation. Had they moved quicker, do you think some of this could have been avoided? I, I mean, I recall when the Detroit casinos passed it, they acted immediately on enabling legislation. You know, I don't know, John, if I've actually thought about that. I, I don't I don't know if the timing of the enabling legislation, which, as you said, came several, several years later. I don't know if that I don't know how I don't know what degree that made a difference here. I, I will say, you know, as we as we commented to the judge uh, three weeks ago when Rick Johnson was sentenced, that he came into that office with a plan. Uh, to bribe people and to shake them down. He clearly uh, was brazen about what he was doing. And, you know, whether any of the the, the, the legislative run-up to that would have made a difference, I don't know. So I know right now there's a lot of things you can't say, but could you just tell our listeners what can you say about the most noteworthy updates in this investigation? Are you, give me a little more sense if you can about what what specifically you're 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 asking about oh i think just when you overall are able to talk about the capacity of what you've been able to discover and the issues and the achilles heels you've been able to pin out what would they be yeah i mean you know that would that would be focused on the 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 four defendants that we have successfully convicted and who have now been sentenced you know i think as folks know you know marijuana was and and is a promising new industry last year it netted 2.3 uh in revenue uh, 2.3 billion in revenue, and anyone who was going to enter this industry had to go originally had to go through this board. So, you know, Rick Johnson really served as a gatekeeper on that. And as I mentioned, you know, he came into this job intent on using it to make money for himself. Uh, he took over $110,000 in cash payments, in luxury travel, in commercial sex. Uh, it was not a one-time thing. These were multiple payments that came in over several months, and there was a fairly elaborate scheme to try to conceal it, which included you know, multiple LLCs, uh, burner phones, there were code names, and that's that really is, is the conduct that we've been after. I think as, as the sentencing reflects, as you heard from the judge who sentenced Rick Johnson, there's special accountability for those are the office holders themselves. You know, I think all of the sentences here uh, were strong sentences, but as you can see, Rick Johnson got 55 months. That's four and a half years. I can tell you that the average bribery sentence uh, in the federal system in 2022 was 23 months. The average length in 2020 was 15 months. And so, you know, the sentences that we got here, we're pleased with. We send, we think they send a really, a really strong and, and needed message about about this crime and the accountability that will follow for public corruption. Among the nerdiest of us watchdogs in Lansing, there's a lot of conversations about ways Michigan can improve transparency and government accountability in our statute. As a federal attorney, what do you view as Michigan's greatest weakness when it comes to pursuing these corruption-like cases? Yeah, I'll speak. You know, I, I, I need to hold off speaking on specific proposals, but I can speak generally about that. You know, I, I really hope that you know, state officials, policymakers, lawmakers 
are paying attention to what what happened in this case, this major public corruption scandal. And I think there's a lot of questions that we we need to ask. Do we have sufficient financial disclosure laws? Is the 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 Freedom of Information Act broad enough to allow the type of scrutiny that can come for people who get that information? What about our disclosure law around lobbyists? Two of the the defendants here were were lobbyists. And then I think there's always a question too about enforcement. You know, you can have the strongest laws on the books, but if they're not enforced, they they don't mean much, right? So I think I, I hope that this. This series of convictions begins or, 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 or hastens a discussion about whether we have sufficient mechanisms in place to ensure the integrity of our system. And, you know, I'll just add, it is difficult to underestimate the importance of this crime. It, public corruption is a very serious crime. And in many ways, I would suggest it stands by itself because it's a crime that really attacks directly the, the rule of law. You know, folks who go into office have a responsibility to act on the behalf of the interests of people they, they serve. And when they violate that, you know, they're attacking the system itself. And the results of, you know, this type of crime can be very poisonous. You know, those folks who played by the rule, and, and certainly there were many here who did, feel like they can't compete. You know, I think it, it obviously diminishes public confidence. And arguably, it you know, it, it hurts democratic participation. I think... If people look around and they see that the way you get ahead is not by, you know, following the system and the rules, but by paying off the person who holds office, then why participate in the system? You know, a kind of cynical shrug of the shoulders. So it's a serious crime, and I, and I hope it begins or continues a serious conversation. Mark, I don't know if you saw this uh, story from the Detroit News earlier this week uh, about a uh, $800,000 account connected to the Senate Majority Leader at the time, Arlen Mikoff, ahead of him pushing Rick Johnson for a seat on the state's medical marijuana licensing board. Is that something that you happen to notice? You know, I, I, I will say broadly that I read a lot of Michigan papers. I listen to a lot of Michigan news. You know, I mentioned in one of our press conferences that, in fact, a, an investigative report by, by one of our Michigan sources was, a, you know, one of the key factors that got things moving early on in this investigation. And so the work of, you know, investigative journalism matters. As to this particular claim, you know, I'm afraid I have to fall back. It, it, we've got an ongoing investigation here and I can't speak about any particulars, but, but I do pay attention and my team pays attention to, to what's happening. And is that something that, that you all at the federal level would pay attention to in regards to payments from campaign accounts or from these you know, these nonprofits, these uh, 501c4s or 501c5s or, or what have you, is that something within your purview to do something about? I'm afraid I'm probably a little boring, Kyle, but I'll just have to say that, you know, generally we will follow the evidence wherever it leads. If we can meet our burden of proof, which is a very, very high one in our system beyond a reasonable doubt, there's no other reason that's going to keep us back from further charges. We want to make sure that that people are held accountable. But, you know, we've got to satisfy our ethical obligations to only bring charges where we can satisfy that burden. And we're going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. And one more question on that front. Your batting average, U.S. attorney, you mentioned that your standard for bringing forward a case is beyond a reasonable doubt. And as a result, the batting average of a U.S. attorney's office and as far as getting a conviction or a plea is what, 90, 95%, something like that, isn't it? I think generally in the federal system, about 95% of uh, charged defendants uh, eventually plead guilty. I think that's, I think that's right, Kyle. Or, you're, or found guilty. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, that's right. I understand there was a, something in, regarding a $2 million gift. Was that given outside the statute of limitation? Was that covered by the charges? Yeah, I can say a little bit more about that. You're you're referring to, I believe, what was in some of our filings, the 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 two million dollars that uh, Rick Johnson or his firm received uh, prior to him taking office, lobby, marijuana lobbying related services. You know, this the this, the federal statute that we work with, the bribery statute. Uh, one of its elements requires that the payment would have been received while the person was in office. And of course, those payments were all payments that happened, 
prior to the person taking off. And so they were not the subject of the charges that we filed. And what about companies? Can you tell us anything about company C? Is, is, will we ever know who that entity was? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you why why we don't say. I know there's been reporting around it. We, we, as a standard practice, the Department of Justice does not name uncharged third parties. And that's the, the practice that we're following here. Okay. I have one more quick question, too. I understand the Justice Department has been working with the Jewish community. You, and it, you might have met with them. What can the Justice Department do to sort of protect uh, the Jewish community in light of what's happening? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked. We're doing whatever we can to protect anybody who may be particularly vulnerable, especially at this at this tense moment. You know, what that has meant for me is, one, making sure that I'm very tight with my colleagues in law enforcement, talking regularly uh, with FBI. You know, I've, I've talked with our new special agent in charge about the situation. I've talked just yesterday with the assistant special agent in charge who is in the Western District, uh, is located in our building, regular conversations and updates about what's happening and what we're seeing. It also includes uh, outreach to uh, groups that I think are, are particularly vulnerable. You know, I've made a series of calls over the last week and a half, two weeks, to many religious leaders, certainly many, many rabbis. Uh, I have talked with uh, leaders in the Muslim community. Uh, as you mentioned last night, we had, and this, this had been planned months ago, but we had a, an event at part of our United Against Hate campaign regarding educating the public about civil rights. We had an event at Temple Shari Zedek last night in East Lansing and had a very good turnout and a great discussion. Tomorrow, I'm going to be meeting with some imams on the Grand Rapids uh, area in the Muslim community. I, I think that work is just really important. I want everyone to know that we are vigilant, that we're here to protect them, that they can always call us and that, you know, we're 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 really paying attention. While we talk on other topics, I mean, what do you think, What? how would you describe the current state of mistrust with our country's judicial system? You know, I think, I, I certainly think as many, many people have observed that we're living in a moment where there is, you know, at least from some quarters of the population, some significant distrust in law enforcement, in the FBI, in the Justice Department in in the courts, you know, I will say I push back very, very hard against any measure of that distrust that is based on a claim that law enforcement, that DOJ, that FBI is pursuing political aims. You know, I think the the foundation of the work we do, and I think the Justice Department has a long tradition of this, is that we do not operate based on political considerations. We follow very stringent ethical rules. We do a review for conflicts in every case we bring. We're very careful to, to, to follow our, our policies and we follow the evidence wherever it leads. Again, without fear or favor, with independence and with impartiality. And, you know, not only is that what I'm required to do, but it's something I deeply deeply believe in. The public has to have confidence that those who wield this incredible power where you can take away somebody's liberty or, or their, their property, that we're going to be using that power in a way that is marked by nothing but, but integrity. So we are over time, but would you happen to have time for just one last question? Well, not knowing what it is, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my question is, and I am kind of curious if you would be able to do this type of comparison, uh, but when you think about public corruption, investigations and issues, um, and also the relationship that they have with what is existing state statute, uh, what is something that one state has that has assisted them very well in weeding out public corruption that Michigan doesn't have? Well, you know, I, I, let me ask, are you asking me to comment on, on state, the state level or, or the federal level? I've obviously. So I know that you are on the federal side of things, but if you can speak on the state level, that would be great. You know, I mean, I, I don't work in that in that particular space, so I don't know that I'm, I'm the best uh, equipped to speak about it. You know, I will say, though, you know, certainly I think we have seen over the past 10 to 15 years, the Supreme Court every time. 
Um, they have taken up the federal public corruption laws, have narrowed it. I think, you know, for those of us who enforce these laws, that's that's uh, concerning. And I will also just say that this work certainly depends upon, you know, having good, strong laws to enforce it. But it also depends upon having an infrastructure on the investigatory side that is in place to be able to build these cases. You know, some some criminal cases like a homicide, there's usually a body like those cases. Just it's hard to hide those cases. They show up. Right. Public corruption does not. It takes human sources. It takes strong relationships. It takes getting out there and doing the hard work of building relationships and understanding what's happening. And so, you know, certainly moving forward, I'm in lots of conversations about how we can strengthen this work, you know, especially after this important case that 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 we've just completed with these these four defendants. Thank you so much, Mark Totten, for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you all for having me. Call my baby crying, saw the silver lining. It must be an omen. Needed you to serve me without For our final segment today, we are joined by House Elections Chair Penelope Cernoglu, a Democrat representing the intersection of Clinton, Ingham, and Shiawassee counties. Before joining the legislature, Rep. Cernoglu was an Ingham County Commissioner for three terms and was a victim's advocate for Lansing Bay Shelter for domestic and sexual violence survivors and violent encounters. She's with us today specifically to discuss legislation prohibiting the use of deep fakes, a use of synthetic media presenting someone's likeness in election communications. Why do you think this legislation in particular has gotten so much attention, uh, both from the media and people within the Lansing circle? I think uh, because AI is such an emerging um, technology uh, that people People are excited about it. People are scared of it. Um, and it, it just is kind of an interesting uh, topic to kind of follow and watch right now because we don't quite know how far it will go. Okay. So when you talk about deep fake, are these very advanced AI usages? Uh, could you just kind of dumb down what exactly this package is going after? What exactly is it targeting? And what is the big penalty here with all of it? So um, so we have a package of bills um, that is, uh, you know, covering AI-generated content um, and deepfakes. Um, deepfakes is only um, part of the package. Um, so in regards to deepfakes, uh, that's materially deceptive in media when you think you're seeing someone and hearing someone and it's not really them i think at this point most people have seen um, a deep fake um, there's some really popular ones um, circulating on the web like uh, a video about uh, mr beast and there's been one from morgan freeman out there for actually two years now that's an older image but coming into the political um, arena we've started seeing uh, deep fakes of political uh, figures uh, coming more and more frequently. Um, and so our packet, so the deep fake bill, it requires that you put a disclaimer if you're making a deep fake, you have to put a disclaimer on there that says it's materially deceptive content. And if it is 90 days within 90 days before an election, um, and you know that it's false and your intent is to harm that particular, a candidate, um, that particular person, target, um, if you will, and um, if you want to influence voters against uh, this particular um, target. So we do have some requirements there um, set forth. And if you uh, if you fall within that category, then you would be subject um, to some penalties um, for doing that. We also, uh, in another bill, we are looking at AI-generated campaign, and we call them qualified political ads. And you have to put a disclaimer on those that it's generated um, in part or in whole um, by AI. We have penalties related to that if, if you're going to be doing those ads and not putting the disclaimer. And beyond ads, uh, if you're 
doing other type of political content. We still require a disclaimer, but the penalties um, are much smaller. Our goal here is to, well, really to create a framework um, of regulation so that anyone who wants to follow the law knows what they have to do to stay within the law. Because right now, there's absolutely no regulation on um, deep fakes or AI-generated content. And this would be really easy to do, just like putting a paid-for disclaimer on your yard sign. Um, if you're a campaign, you should be aware of these regulations and you should be able to follow them. And of course, the the reasoning is because we want to make sure that voters are getting the correct information and not being misled. You sort of answered part of this question already, but when it comes to Michigan politics specifically at this point, to what degree is this preventative legislation? You know, are we beginning to see AI generated political content in our state? So I think we we already have seen seen AI generated content. And a lot of times we don't know that we've seen it. Um, we've certainly heard it and we don't know um, that we've heard it thus far. Uh, there there probably haven't been you know, huge uh, ramifications to our election system because it it's just now uh, becoming more widespread um, to use this technology in a political way for ads and uh, content uh, that that would influence voters. Um, so this is definitely um, preventative, but the reason it's needed is because the AI generated content um, and deep fakes, um, they're already here. Um, they're already happening. Um, so we need to ensure that they're not going to impact um, our next election cycle, um, which is rapidly approaching. Um, and the technology just gets better and better. Um, right now, um, I would argue that AI-generated images are virtually indistinguishable um, from real images. And we've seen consequences with AI-generated uh, images crashing the stock market, um, which is certainly you know something that had a huge impact on the real world. And we don't want to see uh, we we don't want to see negative impacts on. Um, on our upcoming elections. And we just want to make sure that people um, don't lose faith um, in our elections process. I know that AI is kind of a new concept, but I feel like something that has always been kind of a part of the political game is taking someone's gotcha moment and turning it into a campaign ad. Why should you treat AI differently then, you know, taking something someone said several months ago and then just clipping out so that you have that bare minimum of what they said. I'm not sure if that makes sense. So you can still do that. You, you can do that. I, I think you're saying just replaying someone, something someone actually did say. You can definitely do that as long as you're not, it's in their own voice and you're not recreating that using AI. Um, if you use AI to you know, make that clip, you would just have to say that it was in part AI generated. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, there are certainly ways to do that not using AI. And as far as the deep fakes bill is concerned, it, it actually doesn't limit itself to AI. It, it the, the real focus there is uh, things that are materially deceptive. Um, but in most cases, you're not it's not going to be believable um, to your average um, human unless it's it's AI generated. So like kind of like those videos of like they'll take clips from Obama speeches to make it sound like he's singing the song Hotline Bling. Yeah, I mean, you can if you're using AI, you have to use the disclaimer. If you're not using AI and you're using something else, then you don't have to use the disclaimer. Uh, but I mean, that that's definitely, uh, you know, a, a good question there. And I think there's a lot of things we're going to have to think about um, as we move forward. Like, is this materially deceptive content? Is a reasonable voter going to be fooled by this? Um, yeah, you have to ask all those questions. Um, and if someone, you know, sa accuses, you know, someone of doing this, this illegally, then that'll go to a court and the court will make that decision ultimately. I know sort of following up um, during committee, some Republicans expressed concern about the use of the legislation to potentially take down or hold up legitimate messaging. You know, are there ways to ensure that some of this messaging isn't bottled up during an election cycle? And how likely is it that you think that would actually happen? I, I actually don't think that's a legitimate argument against this. Any people could do all sorts of 
random things. And that's not really something that this is like is likely to um, lead to. I think there was a line of questioning there that was really kind of based on, well, what if someone lies? People lie all the time about all sorts of different things. What if someone falsely accuses someone? What if they do? I mean, that's what our courts are for. That's what we have sanctions for. Uh, People do that. But that doesn't have anything specific to do with this particular legislation or what we're trying to do here. Um, I, I always appreciate, you know, those type of inquiries, but this this would not realistically result in something like that happening. What is the biggest penalty in this package? What is the biggest time in jail that you could spend? What is the most money that you could pay in terms of a fine? Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll speak about the smallest penalty, um, which is a civil infraction, um, which is up to a $250 fine. Um, and that's for someone who's creating political content about a candidate or ballots initiative and they're doing it using AI, but they're not um, using the disclaimer. And we wanted to keep that small um, so that it could be more of a warning. And in most cases, I'm guessing someone who does this won't even end up having a fine. It'll be act more of as a educational tool to let people know this is you have to put a disclaimer if you're going to use AI and you're going to use it to affect a candidate. So on the deep fakes, if you you're this, this would be not the first time you did it, but this would be um, the second time you did it. Um, you could be subject to um, up to a five year felony. Um, and again, a lot of things have to be shown. It has to be shown that um, that you know that this is false. You're intentionally trying to harm another candidate and deceive voters. Um, and that's the second time you do it. So. If you already did it once and you got a misdemeanor and you said, I'm just going to do it again, um, then you could be subject to a felony. Now, I did hear this joke, but also a bit of a concern about this legislation that, you know, obviously there's a lot of young people right now who are experimenting with AI, experimenting with these technologies. I heard this concern that this is going to go after young kids making memes, making content in their basement. Uh, Is there any type of discretion to make sure that type of slippery slope concern does not happen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for one thing, those aren't political ads, right? So those those kids in the basement, um, I would assume they're not, uh, you know, trying to put their content and pay for it to be broadcast, you know, out as an ad. Why would they do that? Um, So, you know, the the whole political ad um, AI generated content um, section doesn't apply to them. Also, um, with the deep fakes, you have to prove that this person um, knows the image is false. Um, it has to be within 90 days of an election. And you have to also have to prove that they intended um, harm to a candidate and um, that that harm is, is reasonable and that uh, they intended to to mislead voters. So, so if someone is doing this in a a way that they're not, you know, in intend having that intent, then we've got them covered, as well as um, exemptions for things that are clearly um, satire or parody. Yeah, if if it's clearly a joke and an average person wouldn't believe it, you know, then this uh, this isn't going to penalize um, anyone who's doing that. We are really looking to regulate um, campaigns and really bad actors that want to mislead voters. And we we believe that most campaigns, um, once they know what the regulations are, what the framework is, um, they're going to follow the guidelines, um, just like we all do when we put paid for by disclaimers on our yard signs. They're going to know that they can, you know, put any type of content they want out there, but they have to put a disclaimer Um, So really, uh, you know, I think this is about protecting voters um, from misinformation um, and protecting our democracy um, so that we don't have um, candidates and issues um, harmed uh, by complete um, forgeries. I'm curious just how much of a protection or a blanket this disclaimer will be. You know, say someone says something you were talking about materially deceptive content. Could they still be sued 
for defamation, something like that? Is just this only covering the, I guess, use of AI in the campaign ad, or does that go a little bit further? Sorry if that's sort of confusing. So so materially deceptive content um, doesn't have to be AI, but it has to be so good that that I that any reasonable person would believe that that's actually you. Uh, So I I can't see how it would really be created in any other way besides AI. I mean, maybe if someone's like so good at Photoshop, um, but that just really isn't, you know, the case. Um, So I, I think it is mainly going to focus on on AI generated content um, and defamation is is kind of a, a different um, just a, a different uh, issue so so I don't see that there's going to be much um, overlap there but defamation is another example of something that you know limits you know what what we are um, we are allowed to do um, in the in the world in general so so good. Great question. Um, and I do want to point out one other um, thing here um, is that this um, is a bipartisan bill package. Um, I'm working with the representative Beerline, um, who also started working on this, uh, you know, has, has been working on it for a long time. Uh, the regulation of AI generated content. And I, I do think that this is um, really important for, you know, anyone who is, you know, engaging in in politics and elections. It's hurt Republicans as much as it or it can hurt Republicans as much as it can hurt Democrats. Um, and it's important that we we support content that's accurate and, and not misleading um, towards either party. Do you think that this legislation can go beyond the scope of elections? Because it kind of seems that right now if AI that we're a bit in a Wild West territory, what is the future of AI going to look like? Uh, what are kind of some more regulations that you can see coming to the legislative conversation at this point? So I, I think that um, ultimately there probably are going to there is going to be a need for more regulations um, on AI, but these this particular bill package doesn't address that. Um, but as we go forward, I'm sure that we will see more um, AI related um, legislation. I my final question would be: I was at the National Conference of State Legislatures Summit this summer, and they talked about this concern of someone using AI to basically mimic a clerk's voice and basically send it out to voters in that jurisdiction saying, you know, don't come today, don't come to the polls, there's this issue, or don't vote, you know, by mail, etc. Is that a concern that you have going into the 2024 elections, that there's going to be bad actors with this technology that could limit access to the polls? Yeah, someone did bring that up to me. Um, So that's, um, that's definitely a concern of something that could happen. I haven't seen that yet. Um, And it's something that that we need to um, figure out how how to address. So yes, that that would be a concern. Rep. Sarah Glue, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to our roundtable participants, Joe Sella, the past U.S. ambassador to Fiji, and previous co-chair Richard Studley of 2022's Proposal 1 campaign. Additionally, thank you to U.S. Attorney Mark Totten of Western Michigan and House Elections Chair Penelope Cernoglu. I'd also like to give a huge thanks to MERS editor Kyle Malin, our publisher John Rurink, the boss, and our house reporter Danielle James, who joined me for our interview with Representative Sarnaglu. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Basher Audio in Okemos. Thanks to him for putting together this audio. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. Take a day with a blue right if you want to You can take my light on the roof of your soul Low key, turn it up, night cold on the pool